Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. It's time for another Political Rewind on this Wednesday, April 28th, 2021. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very glad to have you with us for our show today. We've got a lot to talk about on uh, the program. I do have a reading recommendation for you, though, that's completely off topic from the rest of what we're going to discuss. Listening to the NPR report on the, the, the virus in India, which has become such a horrific uh, event, um, if you have access to the New York Times, Jeffrey Gettleman, who is the bureau chief for the New York Times in India, wrote a riveting first-person story about what it's like for him and his two children holed up in their apartment, fearing every day that they are going to be uh, stricken by the virus, which is taking their friends and neighbors uh, into hospitals. Um, it's a It's a really... Uh, important story about what it's like to be in ground, at ground zero in the New York Times. Jeffrey Gettleman, again, uh, the Times bureau chief. We have one of Georgia's uh, best reporters with us uh, today. It's Wednesday, which means that AJC political reporter, the indefatigable Greg Bluestein, uh, is with us today. Um, Greg, I'm glad that you and I, because this is a pledge show and we have a little less time to talk, it's you and I are going to carry the conversation. And with you on, I know that's not going to be a problem at all. How are you doing? I'm great. And holy cow, there's a lot to talk about. Your rundown at the beginning of the show reminded me of just how it's barely, <laughs> we've barely paused since the uh, the runoffs. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And why don't we get right to it? Um, a A... College and schools accreditation organization, and we should point out there are a number of accreditation organizations, but one of them is now kind of firing a shot across the bow at the Board of Regents because of the speculation that former Governor Sonny Perdue is going to be named chancellor. Uh, The organization says politics should have no role in picking a chancellor, and, uh, and, and although they don't talk about, uh, to the, I don't think they mention Purdue specifically, we know that Sonny Purdue really has no background in education. Um, so let me just, and, and then ask your uh, thoughts about it. Here, the accreditation uh, organization could, could decertify the university schools, and which would mean that students wouldn't be eligible for, for federal loans. It would raise questions about their academic credentials uh, going forward. So it's it's not a small matter, Greg. Yeah, it's a very extreme step if they go that far. They could also put them on probation or kind of put them on notice. And that was what what I thought the letter was kind of a kind of a first alarm bell. Um, and the AJC we the AJC reported I think it was in March that Sonny Perdue was a serious contender um, for this very important coveted role. It's one of the highest paying. Um, jobs in state government. It's also one of the most powerful jobs in state government, overseeing uh, more than two dozen uh, public colleges and universities across the state. Um, and and a board of regents of, of 19 members gets to um, formally uh, pick that that role with Steve Wrigley, the longtime chancellor, retiring in June. Um, it's a big decision. It's one of the most consequential 
government decisions in Georgia, and it's and the Board of Regents is supposed to be independent um, from from state government, although the governor does have sway over that as he does with so many other major decisions, and he's appointed several members of the regents. So a lot of a lot of scrutiny on this role. And Sonny Perdue has not said anything publicly about whether or not he wants the job, but we are told by many sources that he is a that he at least was a serious contender. Um, he has not taken his name out of the running uh, yet, as far yeah. as we know. But it's um, it's it, that process still moving forward. It uh, just to point out uh, how big a job this is: the Board of Regents and the Chancellor. Uh, oversee 26 public colleges and universities with a budget of $8.8 billion, 48,000 faculty and staff, 325,000 students. Uh, the Georgia Public Library System and the Georgia Archives are also part of the university system. So this is a, an extraordinarily important position, as you have pointed out. And it's probably worth saying, Greg, that Steve Wrigley, of course, who served as chancellor for quite a long time now, uh, his roots in politics do go back to his service with Zell Miller, Governor Miller. He was one of Zell Miller's top aides. But Wrigley does have a background that prepared him for the job of chancellor, having worked at the university system in other jobs in the past. So uh, there was not, to the best of my recollection, major controversy that Wrigley and his relationship with Zell Miller uh, were were uh, uh, somewhat con were not they were not controversial when he was appointed to the job as I can recall yeah you're exactly right and I, I, think, I think part of the controversy over Sonny Perdue is that um, he he's a more polarizing political figure having served in the Trump administration who's been the, the state's first Republican governor since reconstruction. Um, and so you're hearing from students and faculty who have, who have launched a grassroots group, Students Against Sunny. So you're hearing some pushback. Um, there's also a lot of just concern behind the scenes that I'm hearing, just how serious is this? A lot of questions being asked. A, why would Sonny Purdue want this job? <laughs> you know, he's in his 70s. Yeah, he's had a long service and long career in public office. Why would he want um, a job like this that is very demanding? And B, why would the powers that be, whether they be the regents or Governor Kemp or whoever, um, want him in this job? Like, what's the what's the trade-off? Um, and those are questions. You know, we 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 launched on the the morning jolt last week, uh, as we noted that there was some significant pushback that we were hearing from regents um, who were speaking to us anonymously, um, and then since then, shortly after that. The regents announced it was pausing its formal search for a new leader and instead um, indefinitely, and we're not sure if that means they're going to pick an interim, we're not sure if that means they're going to resume the search anytime soon. Very opaque process that we're dealing with right now. Uh, it is worth pointing out that um, Governor Kemp, it, it wouldn't be unusual to think that Governor Kemp might have an interest in, if, if Sonny Perdue presumably is interested in the job. Uh, Governor Kemp does have reasons for trying to give whatever help he can to Sonny Perdue, because we believe it was the Perdue brothers, both Sonny, I mean cousins, Sonny and David, rather, cousins, uh, who first brought Brian Kemp when he was a candidate for governor in the primaries to the attention of Donald Trump and said, this is a guy you need to back. So, uh, so Brian Kemp 
does have a little bit of a debt out there for Sonny Purdue. Yeah, and the former president has even gone on the record saying Sonny Purdue is the reason he endorsed uh, Brian Kemp. And look, their history goes back even beyond that. <laughs> Sonny Purdue encouraged Brian Kemp to run for state senate back in 2002. He was an construction company owner. Um, and then he, later on, he appointed Governor Kemp as Secretary of State uh, when um, Karen Handel stepped down to run for statewide office and giving Governor Kemp, now Governor Kemp, but the, back then inter, interim Secretary of State Governor Kemp, a clear path to, to victory over, over uh, several Republican challengers in that pro Republican primary way back when uh, because he had the power of incumbency. So they have a long history. So that's one reason why Kemp might want to do this. And secondly, you know, another re cause for speculation is that Sonny Perdue could tell or could urge President Trump to kind of back off. Um, he's still not going to, I don't think, ever endorse Governor Kemp, but he might, he might, uh, he might, you know, pull back some of the invective uh, that he's targeted Governor Kemp with, maybe with some urging wait, from Sonny wait, Perdue. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry, Greg. Donald Trump pull back on invective? <laughs> Are we talking about the same guy? <laughs> yeah, that's why that's why people who are speculating about this aren't quite sure. But I can tell you this: look, it's been it's been uh, it's been more than a week, and he has not yet endorsed um, Vernon Jones, the de the, the former yeah. Democratic turned Republican challenger who launched his challenge against Kemp with a promise to be pro-Trump. Yeah, um, and, and, that, and I want to talk a little about that as the show goes on. You know, as long as we're talking about, um, as long as we've mentioned Zell Miller in the context of Steve Wrigley, who was so important in the Miller administration years ago, uh, there's an actual a tie-in to uh, President Biden's uh, speech tonight, his first joint session, uh, speech before a joint session of Congress, before he comes to Georgia tomorrow. And we'll talk about the Georgia visit in a second. But one of the things that we expect uh, President Biden to announce tonight is another sweeping $1.8 trillion American family plan package, which, among other things, will guarantee two years of free community college to all Americans and free pre-K. And, and the reason I say this relates, in a way, to uh, uh, former Governor Miller and Steve Wrigley is that, of course— one of the things that got Zell Miller elected governor was establishing the Georgia Lottery, which was a, which the revenues of which were going to go for three different initiatives, two of which were <clears throat> guaranteed preschool, pre-K for all kids in Georgia, and then, of course, the Hope Scholarship. So I just think it's fascinating that we come full circle with Biden proposing those things now. Yeah, and look, you've had Democratic presidents propose these 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 initiatives before um, President Obama, right before a visit to Georgia um, about a decade ago, uh, proposed a similar package. Uh, but back then, the difference was he couldn't get it passed. And now there is a there is a there is at least a pathway to getting. And look, we're talking about overall roughly six trillion dollars in spending if you if you yeah. take together the coronavirus relief package and then both the elements of this infrastructure package all told. Um, but as he proved with the coronavirus relief package, there is a very narrow pathway that he could follow to get this passed. Yeah, uh, which is why Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff's elections are so crucial to anything that President Biden wants to do, which is, of course, one of the reasons he's coming here uh, right out of his uh, speech. 
tomorrow morning. Uh, all right, let's do this. We got to take a break. We are in our pledge drive. I've already heard from some of you who say, do we really have to go through this again? Uh, we're already uh, supporting GPB. And my thanks to you. We're grateful to you for doing that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that if we want to keep programs like Political Rewind, the NPR shows that you hear uh, every day on our air, um, this is how we do it. Uh, we depend on your dollars. Your dollars pay for the salaries, for the production costs of all of the programming here at GPB, and that includes Political Rewind, which you tell us so often is a show that matters a lot to you. So we're going to take just a couple minutes and let you uh, hear from people who can tell you how you can become a donor if you're not one already, and then I'll be back with more with Greg Bluestein. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind. Sam Burmistaz, Amelia Brock, Jesse Neiswanger, and I are always grateful to hear um, your positive comments about the show. I very quickly want to remind you that when I launched Political Rewind seven years ago, the show was on one day a week. And then we added a second day, and a third, and a fourth. And for over a year now, since January of 2020, um, we've been a five-day-a-week show, live at 9, a rebroadcast at 2 in the afternoon, uh, you have made this show popular because you've said you like what we do, and that's why it, we really do turn to you and say, help keep us going. And for those of you who have done that, thank you very much. Greg Bluestein is uh, with me. Uh, so, Greg, let's talk about the President Biden's visit to Georgia. Uh, it, this is, I think, the second time he's come here following a major speech the next day. It's a sign of how important Georgia is to him. And... Um, we, we think the Gwinnett Post is reporting. I know you're going to be the local pool reporter, so you'll be with the president tomorrow. The Gwinnett Post is reporting he's going to go up to Gwinnett County uh, uh, to, to talk, maybe have a, a, an outdoor rally. But I'm, I'm excited about the fact that he's going to travel the plains to spend time with Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, Greg. Yeah, really, really cool um, development that was, was kind of unexpected. Um, so as far as we are, we understand, he's flying to to the Albany Plains area, uh, and will get to Plains, meet with the president and his wife. Uh, of course, former President Carter could not make it to the inauguration um, because of the pandemic and because of his health. Um, but this will be a way for the old friends to get together and remember um, back when President Biden was a U.S. senator from Delaware, a first-term senator. He was one of then President Carter's biggest allies in the upper chamber. So they have a very long history. And and former President Carter gave a very enthusiastic endorsement of Biden at the Democratic National Convention um, last year. Let, let's talk about why Georgia. Uh, I mentioned it uh, basically in passing during the first segment of the show. But uh, Biden's agenda is so ambitious, all of these 
billion-plus-dollar programs that he's rolling out one after the other that he could never have even thought to try to accomplish. And we don't know how far he's going to get with his infrastructure plan quite yet. We don't know about this new uh, plan he's rolling out tonight. Nevertheless, he has more freedom to look to trying to accomplish these things thanks to Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff's election to the U.S. Senate. Yeah, this visit tomorrow is almost a thank you to Georgia because the $6 trillion that we, we that I was just talking about, the total cost of all three of his packages, um, that, that figure wouldn't be remotely uh, that large uh, in a Republican-controlled Senate. And of course, Republicans say it's far too large, it's far too ambitious, it's far too much spending, and it's, it leads to waste. But um, the fact is, Democrats wouldn't even be talking about any sort of expansive domestic policy without control, narrow control, but control nonetheless of the U.S. Senate because of those two flips in January. And there's a direct line uh, between those events. And that is one of the reasons why Democrats are trying to be so ambitious, because they've learned some of the lessons from um, President, then President Obama's uh, first two years in office when um, they had more ambitious plans and kind of curtailed them to try to win over Republican support and then got pilloried for it nonetheless. So um, you're seeing that sort of cause and effect. And you're right. Uh, his last visit, uh, it was supposed to be a victory lap for the coronavirus aid package that was about $1.9, $1.89 trillion. And it turned into a more somber event because that was shortly after the, the shootings that left eight um, eight people dead in Metro Atlanta spas, um, primarily Asian American victims. Um, so he focused his he ended up focusing his remarks on that, but also said at the time he'd be back and and he's coming back tomorrow. Uh, Greg, very very just a brief uh, capsule a description, if you will. What does it mean? I think our listeners be interested in knowing what does it mean to be a pool reporter for a visit of the President of the United States. You are routinely selected to do that. Yeah, and basically it's 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 kind of a, a lot of work, but basically it usually means being <laughs> with the president if you're local. If Washington pool goes with him from you know from Washington all the way down to wherever he's going. But if you're local, that means being there when the plane lands and when it lifts off and to file reports to uh to national media and to everyone else who wants to know uh, about everything in between. So you know, very rote things like who's welcoming him on the tarmac, what kind of protest signs you see on the way to and from events, um, his remarks, those kinds of things. Um, but with the pandemic, it's changed things up a little bit more. So you have even less access as, as a local pooler than you did before. For instance, when he was last here um, a few months ago, a few weeks ago, I should say, uh, we didn't have even the local pool didn't have access to his visit to the CDC. Uh, we were at uh, Emory during his big speech, but we did not. We were not able to see him at some of his earlier stops, and I won't be with him in planes tomorrow either. So, um, I, you know, I've been in your position, and I think what you said is important. <laughs> what it means to be local pool—it's sort of an honor, but as you point out, it's an honor that comes with an enormous amount of work to do <laughs> when you're in that. And position. you've got to learn how to uh, type in a moving vehicle because that is that is one of the hardest parts of the job—is is filing distance, <laughs> moving motorcade without getting too carsick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, I would assume there's little doubt they'll be flying down on Air Force One with the president tomorrow. Um, let's talk about Raphael Warnock. You posted a 
piece this morning in uh, the AJC online, AJC.com, in which you talk about the fact that it is somewhat surprising, uh, especially with Doug Collins announcing just a couple days ago he's not running for anything in 2022, that Raphael Warnock has not drawn a big-name Republican challenger at least quite yet. Yeah, and, and I talked to Republican operatives who said the same thing. They're astounded that there's no household Republican name. And I know these races are usually slow to develop. You look back at the Senate race just from last year, and John Ossoff didn't even get in that contest till I think it was September of 19. Um, so, and it, Reverend Warnock didn't get into the special election until January of of of, uh, of last year. So, you know, it, it's not a it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the Republican candidacy by any means. A big name could still get in, but the fact that Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock, has already amassed a roughly $6 million campaign war chest, a big advantage early on. And Republican big names like Senator Perdue, like Doug Collins, even like Chris Carr, who was rumored to have been seriously considering a race, and now his, his aides are telling me that he's gearing up for re-election instead. All those kind of well-known Republican figures around the state are sidestepping. They're saying no, no thank you to a challenge of, of, of Raphael Warnock leaving. There's still going to be plenty of, of people interested in the run, um, but they're not necessarily names that that are that are at the top tier of the Republican Party. And then the biggest name of those names is someone who's completely untested in politics, and that is Herschel Walker, uh, who actually lives in Texas, and he's the former UGA football great. So um, how surprising was it to you that Doug Collins not only passed up an opportunity to run for the GOP uh, nomination against Warnock, but also said he's not running it for the GOP nomination for governor. And some had suggested that uh, Donald Trump would have, would have gladly endorsed Doug Collins in a race against Brian Kemp. He's decided to sit out the 2022 cycle completely. Yeah, I wasn't too surprised. Um, he had already signaled, uh, to me at least, and uh, to other political watchers, that he wasn't going to run for governor. Um, and I think, well, I know that President Trump made it even harder for him to run for Senate because he went out and publicly encouraged Herschel Walker to run instead. Yeah, so that kind right, of put exactly. Doug Collins in a bind. But also, you know, C Collins has been in the state legislature and in Congress for, for a long time now. He has a radio show now of his own. He has a private law firm. So he's starting to to, to make some money in the private sector. Um, and he might wait a few, you know, a cycle or two and, and run again. But I actually was kind of looking at him as potential candidate for Congress all over again if the Republican legislature carved out a seat that would have been maybe the 7th district, that would have been um, good for him. So instead, I, that was probably my most surprising thing was when they said he won't run for any office, and that includes Congress. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about people like a Chris Carr saying, I think the indication being he may run for re-election. This is speculation, but I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. It does suggest that some of these bigger names in the Republican Party really are kind of trying to get a lay of the land about where Georgia is headed as a purple state. And they don't want to risk too much not knowing how things are going to develop over the next couple of years. So they're playing it a little safe. Does that make sense to you? That makes total sense because there, there are some Republicans who think what happened in November and January is anomaly, was driven by by hatred for President Trump. And then in January, by Republicans who stayed home, 
because of all the lies about rigged elections. Uh, and there's some Republicans who frankly believe that Georgia's on the cusp of a broader change and and would rather run in 2026 or 2024 than take a stab at it next year. All right, uh, Greg, let's do this. We've got to stop for a couple more minutes to give people an opportunity, if they haven't done so already, to uh, make a pledge to help support the work we're doing here at Political Rewind and across the board at GPB Radio. I want to talk very quickly, at least, after the break, about where Kelly Leffler stands in this puzzle about 2022 Senate race. But first, uh, here's how you can become a part of our GPB Radio family. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Bluestein, you've got some fans out there. Amelia Brock just sent me a note saying that at least one of our Facebook listeners says, Greg Bluestein has to update us on what's happening with his book. You're writing a book about the 2020 <laughs> election here in Georgia, so please do it. <laughs> I can see the finish line. I'm uh, I'm well along right. the way. Yeah, it hasn't been hasn't been fully edited yet, but I'm I'm getting there. I'm I'm very I'm closer than I ever was before. Well, congratulations on that. Um, you know, one of the things that we're so glad about here, I I talk about political rewind from the GPB perspective, but the fact that we have people like Greg from the AJC contributing to our conversations every week. If this is a smart show, it's people like Bluestein who really help make it uh, just that. So, Greg, you know, we're always grateful that you're a part of this uh, 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 family. Um, all right. I mentioned Shelley, uh, Kelly Leffler. What, what are we hearing? I mean, Leffler's launched this uh, organization, this outreach effort to get conservative voters motivated to vote. Uh, but she's been relatively silent in terms of talking about whether she may want to take on uh, Raphael Warnock. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, I was with her um, a few weeks ago at the launch, the formal like kickoff party uh, for Greater Georgia, which is her group that she she intends it to be the Republican answer to verify action, which is the voting rights group that Stacey Abrams started. Um, and it was it was right outside of um, Truist Park um, at the Battery. In, in Cobb County. And I asked her that question. I said, hey, you know, are, are you any closer to making up your mind for U.S. Senate? And she said her focus right now is on on Greater Georgia and, and, and launching the group. So, you know, she didn't make any news there. But um, what I'm being told by folks around her is that she's still considering it. And, and she's probably 50-50. Uh, my gut, just like with Doug Collins, my gut kind of told me that me, tells me that neither of them will run. I always thought if one ran, the other would also run. But if, if if one doesn't run, both neither will run. That's just my gut. I have no um I have no uh, reporting behind that one. Um, but I, I think this will be more of a, a race for some some candidates who were not in the can in the contest last year. Okay, so are you suggesting at this point that uh, you've already made the point that that no one with a big name has emerged to challenge Raphael Warnock? What about Brian Kemp, too? I mean, there was this sense, aside from, you, you mentioned Vernon Jones much earlier, the candidate who says he will be the Trumpiest of candidates for governor. But Vernon Jones, while he's well-known, you can't call him 
I think it's fair to say that he's not a real heavyweight in Georgia politics at this point. Is, is it looking increasingly like Kemp could escape uh, from a serious challenge? Or, or is Vernon Jones a serious challenger, and am I underestimating him? I think it's looking like Kemp will avoid a serious Republican challenger. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's hard. The question Vernon Jones faces is basically how much do, do, do Brian Kemp haters hate Brian Kemp? Are they willing to vote for someone who was a Democrat just a few months ago just to prove a point to the state's first lifelong Republican governor since Reconstruction, right? Um, and and that's, that's the situation that, that Brian Kemp's Republican critics have. He certainly has lots of problems in his grassroots base, and we reported on him just a few weeks ago about how uh, basically a dozen GOP grassroots county organizations voted to censure him. So lots of problems. But do they hate him when it, when, when, when push comes to shove next year in the primary? Do they hate him enough to vote for someone like Vernon Jones, who, again, voted with the Democratic caucus just a few months ago, voted against the heartbeat bill, the anti-abortion bill that conservatives so, so embraced, and voted for a series of other Democratic uh, proposals during his tenure, not just in in the legislature, but also as the chief executive to Cab County. So um, I'll tell you this: people around Kemp are, are very pleased that that he's the one. He he seems to be the the main Republican challenger that the governor has drawn so far. Um, uh, they certainly don't want anyone else jumping in, but it doesn't look like at this moment that someone like Burt Jones, state senator from Middle Georgia, who's been talking about running a, a self finance campaign, or another big name like like Doug Collins, who Trump publicly urged to run for governor. Now he's ruled himself out. So, um, so far, I think the, the Kemp folks are counting their blessings. On, on the other side of the equation, the Democratic side, uh, I think we all still expect that Stacey Abrams is going to want to launch a, a repeat effort to defeat Brian Kemp. Uh, it's interesting. Again, I was reading the New York Times this morning, and they talk about one of the articles this morning is the 15 books that we're anticipating in May According to the the book column, uh, and one of them is a new book that Stacey Abrams has written. We know she's written romance novels in the past. This one apparently is more like an international thriller, and I I don't have it pulled up on my computer right now, so I can't remember the details of it. But it'll be interesting if she launches a book tour. Uh, how much of the conversations will be about whether she is in fact in the race next year or not? <laughs> exactly, it's a legal thriller, and it's interesting to note too because her romance novels were published under her nom de plume. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but <laughs> but her pen name, which was Selena Montgomery, in this book, uh, and that was before her fame, and now she says, you know what? I don't need a pen name anymore. I'm going to be Stacey Abrams. So she's writing this legal thriller under her name. But I think that just points to the fact that she doesn't feel like she needs, you know, in the in the 18 cycle, she got in the race. Um, she filed paperwork, I think it was in April of 17. So we're at that stage right now. And, you know, she doesn't need to rush. She she is the, she is the, 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 overwhelming favorite so she she could get in at the end of the year and still be just fine and and in the meantime freezes anyone else who may want to any democrat who may want to get in that race and she can afford to get in later because she can raise incalculable sums of money at any point she decides to join the race right you're, you're exactly right and and there's really no talk no serious talk among democrats about about her not running 
I mean, there's a lot to talk for Republicans. I hear it all the time. Oh, she's going to run for president. She's going she's gonna to sit it out. Um, but I always kind of see that as a, as a sort of Republican fantasy, uh, jokingly, um, that she won't run because I, I don't hear from any Democrat saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to be interested in running just in case Stacey doesn't. And look, you saw that with the Senate race in, um, in uh, 19. Um, you had Teresa Tomlinson come out really early and say, if Stacey doesn't run for U.S. Senate, I'm running. Um, so there was definitely that talk in that in the last cycle. But in this cycle, uh, everyone's kind of ceding the field to Stacey Abrams. And if she decides not to run, it'll be a big shock. What happens to a Teresa Tomlinson? We haven't, you know, Teresa was a panelist on this show frequently before she launched her bid for uh, office again, governor, and and she was wonderful, uh, and and yet we've heard nothing from. Are we, do we have any sense of whether she wants to get back into elective politics? Yeah, um, she endorsed Charlie Bailey's attorney general yeah. uh, campaign just yesterday, so she's still playing in in sort of the Democratic politics in terms of endorsements. But I have not since her her U.S. Senate run, um, I have not really heard much speculation about her next step. And, and I'll say this. Uh, she came in second place in that in that five-person um, primary that John Ossoff ended up winning outright. But I think she also damaged her brand um, shortly before, after that vote, but before the final tally was in, because she called Ossoff a failed candidate and said that he had failed to win outright. And that rubbed a lot of Democrats the wrong way and, of course, ended up being completely wrong because he did w- end up winning outright as more tallies from uh, from, from Metro Atlanta were counted. Um, by the way, I just had a chance to look it up while we were talking. Stacey Abrams' new book. You're right; it's a legal thriller, not an international book. It's called "While Justice Sleeps." It is the first novel she's written under her own <laughs> name. So I just wanted to make sure we got that in. Greg, um, we don't want to let the show go by completely without mentioning uh, that Governor Kemp signed an important bill yesterday, a bill that uh, uh, brings strong, strong measures to fight human trafficking in Georgia. And and one of the, first of all, it got unanimous support, which never happens anymore in the Georgia legislature. Um, and his wife, Marty Kemp, was really a motivating force behind this legislation. She took a deep interest in the issue of human trafficking. Yeah, and this is actually, <clears throat> it's actually three separate bills, and they all passed unanimously. And it's not something you can usually say about a top, priority for a governor in such a polarizing uh, political time. Um, and Marty Kemp, the first lady, um, since the moment governor took office, actually before he took office, I was at an event with them shortly before he took office in 19. And um, it was a human trafficking, anti-human trafficking event at Atlantic Station. And Marty Kemp was there. And she said she was so moved by the, the efforts of organizers to fight human trafficking that she decided to make it um, her her motivating pledge, her her kind of her drive. And I don't think it's I think it's fair to say that she's the most politically involved first lady of in Georgia in modern Georgia history. Um, and I know Patricia Patricia Murphy, the new political insider, my, my colleague at the AJC has written about this, but she, um, she but 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 Marty Kemp has made this her top priority. And now she has a lot to show for it. There's not just the three bills that were just signed into law um, yesterday, but also there was a sweep of crackdowns that Governor Kemp signed in the last two years that Marty Kemp um, and her Grace Commission helped promote. 
So um, do we know, is this an issue? You inter- I think you did a one-on-one interview with her uh, just this past week. It, does she have another uh, cause that she wants to take on? Does she, get, does she see more work that needs to be done in this field? What, where is she headed next as the most uh, involved first lady, politically involved first lady in generations? Yeah, we asked her about that yesterday. What's next for the Grace Commission or what's next for, for her agenda? And um, she she said, essentially, they'll be looking at a number of things, but one of them is is how to better secure safe transitional housing um, for victims of human trafficking who are still traumatized and who still might not uh, might have very you know huge issues trying to reacclimate to to normal society after going through all the trauma that they went through. And so I expect m- several more pieces of legislation. Um, and and you know this is a, something that I think she'll focus is on the rest of uh, Governor Kemp's tenure in office, however long that lasts. You, you know, it's one of the things that's interesting about it, and we are running short on time. But you know, Republicans especially are so often accused of not bringing heart to their political agendas that that uh, they, they don't feel uh, that they have compassion, that they're empathetic. So I'm not suggesting that's necessarily true all the time, but certainly Marty Kemp, by taking on an issue like human trafficking, does bring that aspect to the governor's agenda. You're exactly right. And you can also tell the governor is very passionate about it. Um, and, and, and the governor even joked yesterday, like, look, you know, everyone always gives him grief that his wife is the only one who, who can get these unanimously passed legislation <laughs> through the chamber. And again, not just one piece, but three, which is which is a feat. I think you the quote was that you had was he thought he was confused about the fact that he couldn't do what she can. <laughs> Greg Bluestein, we are completely out of time for today's show. I'm really grateful to you for spending uh, the hour with it. I knew that you and I would have, pl- you could do this show by yourself. Uh, and I appreciate the fact that you were here with me to break down so many issues today. So thank you, Greg. Um, we're going to be back again, of course, tomorrow morning. Um, but we're going to send you back to our pledge team to talk about how you can get involved as part of the GPB radio family supporting our work here. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy. Uh, Yes, wear your mask above your nose. And I know you've probably already been vaccinated, but why don't you encourage the people who are not vaccinated? It's time they do it as well. See you all tomorrow. Here's our pledge team.